Refuge Radio is a podcast about the National Wildlife Refuge Association and the nation's National Wildlife Refuge System, spanning more than 850 million acres of land and water as part of a growing network of now 568 refuges, at least one in every state. Today, we're speaking with the National Wildlife Refuge Association's resident restoration ecologist, Rob Taylor. In his work with the National Wildlife Refuge Association, Rob has worked at Midway Atoll and Mid-Columbia River and Central Washington Complex. Currently, Rob works with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service staff to improve methods and programs aimed at conserving intact ecosystems, restoring degraded areas, and abating the threat of invasive plant species across eight wildlife refuges in Central Washington and the Mid-Columbia Basin, including Hanford Reach and the National Monument. Rob, welcome to Refuge Radio. Well, nice to be here, KB. Uh, yeah, it's fabulous to be here. I'm excited to talk about our work at in uh, eastern Washington and Oregon. Yeah, okay. Well, let's start there. Uh, describe the refuges where you're working today, and what are the habitats like? What are the species that are being supported? Why are these places important? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, um, there are eight National Wildlife Refuges I'm working on, and they stretch from the foothills of Mount Adams in the Cascades, uh, through the Yakima River in eastern Washington and along the Columbia River, all the way to Pendleton, Oregon. And the refuges are Convoy Lake, Toppenish, Hanford Reach National Monument, Columbia uh, National Wildlife Refuge, McNary, Umatilla, Cold Springs, and Mackay Creek. Um, in terms of the origins of these things, they really vary. The oldest one is Cold Springs, which was designated by Teddy Roosevelt in, uh, I believe, 1906. And the most recent is Hanford Reach, which was uh, declared a national monument by Bill Clinton uh, back in the 1990s. Um, in terms of habitats, they're real mixed. You know, most, uh, like a lot of um, wildlife refuges, wetlands and wet meadows uh, are important habitats. And in a lot of these refuges, these were... Uh, the refuges were created to mitigate for wetlands and other habitats that were destroyed when the dams were built along the Columbia River. Um, and these are, of course, critically important and support a wide variety of waterfowl species, ducks, geese, swans, both during migration and also during the winter, uh, when many of them come down from the south, from the, from the north to, uh, you know, find more hospitable places to spend the winter. Um, and the wetlands are important for other species, too, and they include frogs, turtles, beaver. Um, Convoy Lake Refuge, for example, is a very important area for Oregon spotted frogs, which is an endangered species. And um, at Columbia National Wildlife Refuge, wet meadows provide nesting habitat for greater sandhill cranes. So mm -hmm. wetlands and wet areas are, you know, traditionally uh, found in wildlife refuges, but um, we also have uh, riparian areas and in an arid region like Eastern Oregon and Washington, riparian areas are oases for many bird species such as flycatchers, warblers, vireos. And as with wetlands, riparian areas were lost due to dam constructions. And these areas are very important, uh, for the wildlife on the refuges. Hmm. Um, so that's the kind of wet side of things. Um, but a lot of these refuges have other very important habitats. So in Eastern Oregon and Washington, for example, over a million acres of arid grasslands and shrub steppe have been destroyed due to conversion of crop agriculture. And our national wildlife refuges are now critical for conserving those areas and the wildlife they support. 
Hanford Reach National Monument is probably the the oddball in all of this, and that when it was established, <laughs> actually had it's, yeah, it's sort of it's <laughs> sort of the land it's the land time forgot, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. And when it was established, it had all of these uh, it had a lot of different things that it was trying to protect everything from cultural resources um, to sagebrush steppe and grassland habitat. Um, sure. So there's specifically a trust resource for the monument, and there's important wildlife species there too, like. Uh, fence lizards, pygmy rabbits, sage sparrows. Um, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that not, uh, it's not all the, the big furry things and the feathery things that are important. Uh, some of the refuges also support important plants and invertebrates. So Hanford, for example, has, uh, the only known population of the endangered umtinum buckwheat, which is a rare plant and, uh, over 1500 invertebrate species have been identified there. So, it's a real mix. It's a real mix of habitats and a lot of diversity, uh, a lot of diversity out there. And it's across a big area, which uh, makes it challenging to and also very interesting to get to know. Sure. Hanford, for those of the listeners who don't know, uh, has quite a history to it. Um, it hasn't always been a wild place. Um, no, in fact, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's well, so Hanford, the site was a uh, site for making uh, Pluto enriched plutonium right. and it was a secret basically, um, until after the war. Um, but what happened with that is they had the secret plutonium facility and they needed a big buffer area around it so that no one knew what they were doing. And it's that buffer area, which is about 150,000 acres of land that's now, uh, National Wildlife Refuge. Yeah. That's very cool. So, um, by the way, uh, I like the big furry things and I'm a huge bird watcher myself. But when you talk about reptiles and amphibians, you always get my attention. I'm a, I'm a herpetologist at heart and, uh, it's, it's neat to hear about frogs and lizards and, and other little species of significance that are, that are on these places. So, um, the work that you do, uh, how does it fit in with improving these refuges and, you know, the refuge systems mission of protecting wildlife? Right. Good question. Um, one that I ask myself often. Um, <laughs> I mean, over the past 20 years, there have been significant advances in both ecological science and also in the science of land and water management. Um, and the Fish and Wildlife Service at an official level has kind of kept up with those things. So if you look at Fish and Wildlife Service policy, um, you know, they're committed, I think, to using the the best science available and the, you know, the processes that they follow are scientifically based. Um, there's also been obviously a tremendous leap in the technology that we have at our disposal, like smartphones, right? So we've got advances in science, advances in technology. But then over the last couple of decades, we've also seen a real diminishing resource base for all of the federal land management agencies, including the Fish and Wildlife Service. So there are less people on the ground, uh, more people trying to do more. For example, most of the refuges I work with once had several full-time staff, which included a refuge manager and a biologist. Now nearly all of the staff have been consolidated to a single office for all mm -hmm. eight of these refuges. And a biologist or refuge manager may be covering four refuges instead of one. Um, so there's fewer people around, fewer people out on the ground to get things done. And what that means is we all... Everyone has to work smarter um, and more efficiently. And obviously, one way to do that is to put science and technology to work, um, to bring more information into the decision-making process, to learn by doing. Um, if we're going to do things better, every time we do something, we should be learning from that. 
and to institutionalize that learning so that when um, a biologist learns the most effective way to deal with an invasive species this year, that that same knowledge is available 10 years from now to the biologists working there. Sure. Um, so really, I'm working directly with the refuge biologists and the managers, um, but also with the folks at the regional and national level to kind of leverage this technology to create better systems for institutional learning, planning, um, and uh, use of technology to basically do things more efficiently. Yeah. I wrote in my notes. I'm not try- I wrote- it, sound- it, sounds- it sounds like completely daunting, but I'm not trying to do it all everywhere. Um, you sure. know, we have a lot of capable people out there. Um, my focus areas right now are invasive, uh, the invasive uh, plant species, sometimes known as weeds, and then uh, upland restoration. <laughs> so I'm not working as much on like the what the wetland management side of things. Um, a lot of my work is more upland focused and more invasive species focused. Sure. Yeah. It's, I wrote in my notes in this after this question. You know, innovate or stagnate. I kind of wonder mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. things uh, based on what you just said. One. Um, all right, you're focused on on upland restoration, but um, the lessons learned can they be applied across other uh, ecological services, other projects, other uh, areas of significance? And two, uh, is there room for citizen science here? Great, yeah, great questions. Um, in terms of the systems that we're setting up and the technology, I think they apply to many different systems. So you could leverage, for example, the We've come up with a weed mapping uh, system, and we're working on a system for uh, documenting all of the management actions that happen on the ground. And those apply to all all habitat types and um, areas. So you could use that same technology in Arkansas for uh, <laughs> an oak forest or something like that. You know, so a lot of it is um, more general generalizable. But um, really, I'm trying to tap into just um, you know, I shouldn't say a small area, but I'm trying to tap into a specific area where the need is the greatest right now. Mm-hmm. How about the citizen science idea? Yeah, citizen science. Um, citizen science, there's a lot of ways of kind of defining that. Um, there's citizen science, which could just be bringing in a citizen volunteer to help on a specific research project, or it could be something that they're calling crowdsourcing science, which is um, having a bunch of people out there, for example, with smartphones, and they're all out there maybe counting birds or uh, documenting weed species. Um, and then all of that information comes up into a, a database that the scientists can access. Um, yeah. Right now, you know, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service has always been very, um, very dependent on volunteers and friends groups. And those friends groups are a base for citizen scientists, and they do tap into some of the research projects. As far as involving citizens in the work I'm doing directly right now, um, we're getting things set up and we have plans for that, but uh, we're not quite there yet in terms of sure. actually recruiting uh, other folks to, to help out. Yeah, I mean, data is a hard thing to manage. You want to make sure it's not garbage in, garbage out. and and uh, But there, it seems to me that you know, every hiker, hunter, and bird watcher with a smartphone uh, ought to be able to take a picture of a weed someday and, and one, map that location, and two, find out what it is so it works both directions. Um, I think yeah. it's coming. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, in fact, um, 
Washington State has a um, invasive plant app that anyone can load on their phone, and you can go out and you can find what they've got loaded on there is all of the worst, absolute worst noxious weeds in the state of Washington. And you can use that then to go out and document a weed species anywhere in Washington, including the, the wildlife refuges. But I'd like to see something more specific. Like, wouldn't it be cool to take that app and make um, a version of it that um, guides people to understanding and discovering and documenting weed species at each of the wildlife refuges? Right now, it's a little too broad, but when, I think it would be a cool thing to adapt that app for use by citizen scientists on the refuges. Yeah, cool. Uh, this, this wasn't in the questions list that I had prepared, but I'm wondering, I'm reminded of something my mom used to say that a weed is just a flower out of place. Is that true? <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> gosh, <laughs> <laughs> in today's world when, you know, there are just, you know, you look at the, the, the plants that are growing on any particular wildlife refuge and often it's at least a third of them are non-native species. Um, not all of those are invasive species. That's for sure. We really try to distinguish between non-native species and, and invasive species. And I think invasive species might be more of what your mom was, was thinking of, you know, something that's, you know, I think of, I think of a, of a weed as being something that gets in the way of, uh, you accomplishing your goals. And, um, you know, in theory, they could be either native or exotic species. They're often exotic species. Native, native species are, usually a little more behave, but they can become invasive as well. A good example of that is juniper and some of the safer step in the intermountain West. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, your point is good. You know, when you're thinking about what a weed is, you really have to think about, well, why is this, why is this species something that you should be concerned about? Is it something yeah. that you just don't like to look at? Is it because it's exotic? Um, or is it really something that, um, is causing harm to the wildlife and the habitats that you're, you're protecting. And, um, if we were to, um, if we were to distract ourselves with every non-native species out on the ground, we'd never get to doing the important work of managing for the ones that really are an issue. Sure. And that makes um, sense. I would say, and that is a, um, helping staff figure that stuff out is one of the, um, one of the, you know, important parts of my work. So we've had just in the past six months, we've, um, I've either led or participated in, um, eight different invasive plant workshops, one for each of the eight refuges that, uh, we work at. So, um, yeah, well, that's, um, a, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which is who benefits from your work and where will that impact be felt down the road? Right. Right. Um, I would say at the most immediate level, the staff I work with at the refuges are, um, get benefit because they have problems, they have issues that they're trying to solve. And I'm a person, I'm a resource for them. Um, and I've got kind of an interesting background in that I've got a background both in computer science, um, but also, uh, in ecology. And so I'm able to bring kind of ecology, wildlife, geographic information systems, data science. I can kind of try to bring all of that together to, to help them look at the big picture and figure out better ways of doing things. Um, in the end, though, I, I certainly hope it's the wildlife, the plants and the other things that live out there that benefit from the work. Um, but, you know, we all we all try to, to find a niche um, for our talents. Where can we plug in and do work that, you know, fits our values and does good in the world? And, uh, you know, sometimes what I do seems a little remote. I think 
when people think of an ecologist, you want to, you, you, you picture someone out on the ground with their clipboard and their, uh, scientific instruments. And these days I do find myself, uh, much more often in front of a dual screen laptop, uh, <laughs> sophisticated software, trying to, trying to figure out how to make things, how to, how to pull all kinds of information together. So well, I hope you have windows in your office at least. Uh, yeah, I've, my home office is very nice. Uh, and yeah, I, I've got wildlife right in the backyard. So. That's great. So how does your work connect to the mission of the National Wildlife Refuge Association? Yeah. Um, well, the Refuge Association has a very important and very specific mission, which is to support and enhance the National Wildlife Refuge System. Um, and although a lot of the work of the Refuge Association is focused on either advocating for the refuge system or defending it from threats, there are also several staff that work directly to provide science and technical support to the refuge system um, to address important issues. And that's kind of where I fit in. I'm, I'm one of the, uh, I'm one of the folks working more directly. I, in fact, uh, someone used this term. Um, I'm actually embedded. In the, I'm, I'm embedded within the wildlife refuge system because, you know, mo- a lot of people don't even, uh, don't even distinguish between the fact that whether I work for the refuge association or for the, for the U S fish and wildlife service. But um, um, yeah, I'm really working on the front lines. And, and I think that, that helps um, in several ways, you know, because I can, uh, I have these connections with, you know, staff working day to day on the refuges. I'm also an important uh, part of the team in terms of, uh, you know, conduit of information about what's going on on the ground, at least in the region that I work in. Yeah, very cool. So before you were in Washington, you were at Midway Atoll. Can you tell us about that place and the work that you did there? Wow. Um we could have a very long discussion about Midway Atoll, but I'm certainly happy to tell you. Well, I would, I would like to do a full podcast on that at a later date, but can you just give us sure. a, an overview? Let's was it the same, you, was it the same you, thing? I'll give you a teaser. So yeah. well, Midway Atoll, it's a, it's a wildlife refuge out in the far Pacific. Um, it's very small. It's only about 1100 acres, about, uh, one and a half. I think it's about one and a half to two square miles of land. And it used to be a Navy base. Um, it was a naval air, a naval air base. And so it was always an important place for wildlife, especially seabirds, um, and continues to be an important place for seabirds. Um, but it was very small. And, um, because thousands of people lived there, it was basically, it's basically like going and taking a small town and turning it back into wildlife habitat. So really out there, it's a, it's a real restoration mission. Um, whereas where I'm working now is more of a concert. Well, there's restoration now, but, um, <laughs> it really started off as being more of a conservation mission. Sure. Um, but it's a, you know, Midway Atoll, um, it's the most important breeding site for lace and albatross in the world. Um, it's got about 17 nesting, uh, seabird species, really, uh, really an important place, but because it was so small, I would say my work there was very similar to what I'm doing at, uh, mid Columbia river and central Washington, but it was because I was working with a much smaller place, fewer staff, I was working more hands-on there. So mm-hmm. we were, um, we had a native plant nursery at Midway Atoll. We did everything from scratch from seed collection, growing plants out into a nursery and going out, planting those plants and, uh, these restoration sites. Um, we didn't know a lot about best practices. We didn't have a lot of other places to learn from because Midway is such a unique place. 
So we were really challenged in finding out what's the best way to grow out plants. What's the best way to put plants in the ground and keep them alive? Um, how do you build wildlife habitat from scratch? And um, it was more hands-on and more, um, yeah, more ground-based. Um, but the idea was the same. The idea was the same in that um, we were, there were a lot of people doing really cool things, but they didn't have a great overarching conceptual structure to kind of um, do their work and information was being lost when there was staff and volunteer turnover there. Yeah. Uh, there's, there are two movies that are out right now. One you can watch on Amazon. Uh, both are, are produced by uh, a friend of the Refuge Association and, and of Refuges, Ian Shive. Um, the movie that just came out that's in IMAX theaters all across the country is Hidden Pacific. And then the, the previous film, which is about Midway, um, it's just the imagery is just absolutely breathtaking. Um, of course, watching it makes me want to go there uh, right away. Um, are there places like Midway that uh, we should be visiting or are there places like Midway that we should keep as wild as possible and, and defend? I mean, should we be selling tickets to go see Midway at all or uh, is it best for, for people to watch it on the big screen? You know. Yeah, Midway's a really unique place. Like I, like I said, because of its history of um, being a naval base um, and it being kind of a restoration site in process, um, I think it's not. It's much smaller than the Galapagos, for example. And I've heard I've heard parallels between the Galapagos and the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, and there are a lot yeah. of interesting parallels. They're both oceanic archipelagos. Um, they both have. Um, a long history of species kind of settling on certain islands and then evolving in their own directions. So where you have the, the finches of the Galapagos Islands, you know, Darwin's finches, there are endemic finches to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, for example, the Laysan finch. Um, yep. so there are some, there's some interesting parallels there. Um, in terms of, um, visitation, there was a visitation program to Midway for years. Um, when the wildlife was established in the 1990s, it was turned over from the Navy to the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, there was a visitation program that was started and that went, um, were about, I think about 10 years. Um, and a private company was, um, managing that program because it required flying people in from Honolulu and, um, you know, providing hotel space and meals and all that stuff. And then, you know, tours when they're on the ground. So that was, sure. uh, that was, there was a concessionaire doing that. Um, but there were conflicts between the concessionaire and the Fish and Wildlife Service on what was appropriate recreation out there. And then again, the funding, funding was going, uh, was going down for the refuge system. The whole thing was shut down somewhere in the, uh, the mid 2000s. Um, so right now, the only way you can visit Midway is on official business. You can go there as a volunteer, uh, for example, Fish and Wildlife Service mm -hmm. volunteer. Um, but I don't, I don't think that visitation would be out of the question for a place like Midway. I think it could be done compatibly, um, or as compatibly as anything. You know, I think sure. tourism these days is under a lot of scrutiny because, uh, there were a lot of promises. Um, I think there were, there was a lot of promise that people had identified for ecotourism where, you know, habitat would be conserved and so forth. But, you know, one of the things that we've learned over the last 20 years of ecological science is that people, even well-meaning people um, have an impact on wildlife. So I think there's sure. always yeah, that, that, cruise, that, that cruise yeah, ship shows ahead. up in the harbor and uh, all those people get off to go look at the birds and, and have all these good intentions while 
plastics and waste are uh, flowing out of the cruise ship that they're staying on. I, I, we've right. seen it all. We've seen it all over the place. Right. And what I didn't realize 20 years ago is that when I went for a hike in the, you know, in the forest where I live, uh, a lot of the wildlife were moving away from me, even though I didn't know it. And yeah. they were avoiding, you know, and they're avoiding trails, for example, and people. So, you know, I think there'll always be places that are, you know, should be just left for wildlife. Um, but um, I'm not sure Midway would be that place, honestly. You know, there's a lot of reasons for uh, Midway. <laughs> yeah. Um, Midway might be a good place for people to actually be able to see things. It already has a lot of the infrastructure. Um, you don't have to build it. So, yeah. Well, we'll if you get a chance, if, if you get a chance, check out Hidden Pacific because the big focus is obviously on Midway as well, as well as several other refuge properties out there. And the message at the end, the call to action is kind of a unique one. It's sign up to volunteer and you can come in and uh, experience this place. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. So uh, what do you hope is the legacy of your work and uh, how do you see it shaping the refuge system of the future? Well, in terms of uh, the legacy of my work, um, I'd be really happy if in the future um, when the refuge managers and biologists are, are making decisions, they're making more informed decisions about what uh, they should be doing on the refuges. What's the most effective way of doing conf- conservation? Um, even if they don't realize that I played a role in that, in that, I would be very happy if, if, if I even achieved that. Um, I certainly don't expect to have like a visitor center named after me or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but you know, if, if you propose it, <laughs> um, but really I, I think the legacy would just be, um, better information. And, um, it, and it actually it would be better if people didn't know that I did it because if it was, uh, more organic and if it was made part of the fish, the fish and wildlife service institutionalized knowledge, um, probably no one would ever know that I did it. Um, but that would be, I think, uh, a good outcome. Yeah. Well, that's very selfless of you. Uh, and, uh, I'm excited to, to keep track of it. And how can we learn more about your work? How can we follow uh, your progress? What's, what's the best way to, to stay in touch. Yeah, well, right now I'm occasionally writing some uh, short pieces for the Refuge Association website, refugeassociation.org, um, where you can find all kinds of cool information about our work. Um, but yeah, you could you could uh, check that out. Um, I also love to uh, plug my Midway Atoll blog, um, which I wrote while I was at Midway. So if, if you're interested in things Midway Atoll, uh, you can check that out by Googling uh, the words 18 on Midway, and you should be able to find it. So we'll definitely be checking out the the Midway Atoll blog, and I hope that can be the foundation of our next Refuge Radio podcast together. Uh, before I let you go, uh, is there anything I haven't asked you that you wish I would? It's kind of my standard um, question for everybody at the end. Yes, yeah. Well... Yeah, one question that people rarely ask me because people rarely ask me questions, and this is such a delight to um, have you and an audience who who are interested in things. Um, but one thing people rarely ask me is, what have I learned from working with the wildlife refuge system? Um, before I took the position at Midway Atoll, I knew very little about national wildlife refuge refuges, and it's been really eye opening. Um, Midway being very, you know, a very unique place, but now getting a chance to um, work at and learn about these other refuges. Um, it's been super interesting to me as a, 
both a person with um, strong environmental um, conservation feelings and also an ecologist. When I used to think about conservation, wildlife, habitat, my mind would go directly to national parks and our national forests and wilderness areas where I've, I used to spend more of my recreational time. And these are really, they're obviously really important in terms of conservation, but they only tend to protect certain kind, kinds of places, higher elevation mountains and forests, for example. Whereas the national wildlife refuges are typically lower in elevation, many of them are intensively managed to provide specific habitats for wildlife species, which wouldn't otherwise exist. Um, and so they're a critical, yet o o often overlooked, uh, part of our nation's conservation portfolio. And I was definitely very ignorant of that. And now, um, anytime I travel, I'm always looking to see if there's a wildlife refuge nearby that I can visit because they're such great places to both see wildlife and also learn about it. So for me, uh, the opportunity has been really eye-opening and very educational. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's now given me a whole nother world of, uh, of nature to kind of explore. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I was chatting with somebody. I was actually at the, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service retirees reunion, uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, this week. And, uh, I was chatting with somebody about how national wildlife refuges are in so many ways our most accessible or our most democratic public lands. And that last part's sort of important, uh, I think, because you can do things on national wildlife refuges that you can't do other places. Cause while they are, uh, wildlife first and should always be, um, you know, they, they've cast an eye to the big six to, to, uh, people engaging with wildlife on wildlife refuges. And, um, I love the fact that every wildlife refuge, national wildlife refuge I go to, it seems incredibly accessible. You know, they've done a nice job with signage and boardwalks and there's improvements to be made there, of course. But, um, for me, uh, they're, they're the place right around the corner, which is part of the reason why it's important that we tell the story of them. And uh, and thank you for helping make that story more interesting and, and uh, more detailed by, by sharing your story with us today on Refuge Radio. Uh, I hope you'll come back and tell us about Midway Atoll. It would be a pleasure, KB. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Well, everybody, that's this episode of Refuge Radio. Until next time. We'll see you on The Refuge.